Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, timeless investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding Podcast, sitting next to Mr. Jeff Cannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It is going great, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. Hey, if this is the first time you are tuning in with us, check out all of our content. Go to focuscompounding.com and uh, sign up for our premium membership to get access to a bunch of write-ups, um, both by Jeff and other members, investment write-ups, um, and they are very high quality, usually pretty long, so definitely check that out. Also, check out our... Huh? They're frequent at least. I don't know about how quality. But I think they're pretty high quality. Been, maybe maybe I'm biased. Go to YouTube, hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up. And of course, if you're listening on the podcast side of things and you want to help support Jeff and myself, leave us a rating and review. That goes a long way. I think we're at like 146 podcasts now. We've been okay. pumping them out like crazy, having a lot of fun doing it, and we are not going to stop anytime soon. Uh, so if you want to support the cause, definitely um, support us by following all of our work. So in today's podcast, we are going to be talking about business models. Okay. And I don't know if we've actually dedicated a full podcast to talk about this. Maybe we did a very long time ago. Um, but let's talk about it. You know, what, I guess, straight up from the beginning, I mean, what's your favorite type of business model where you um, look at a company and immediately you know that this is something that you'd be interested in because it reminds you of a different company um, and you're already familiar with the business model and it's one that you like a lot? Uh, I, my favorite business model would be something where a, com- where a business is somehow on the inside of another business and is able to charge a variety of fees and things for work that they do for them while knowing a great deal about the company and being uh, integrated into their operations. Okay, so give me an example of that company. Computer services is a core processing company, consulting companies, advertising companies. Um, we, we talked about one recently that I said does like technology slash marketing stuff for some companies. Um, when they're integrated into the operations of another business, usually. Uh, but but even some things that aren't quite like that, like I years ago I wrote up Exponent, which does... Um, uh, it does sort of um, expert test. It does sort of. It provides expertise in um, the non-legal expertise. So, like expertise in science and technology and stuff that's used in um, legal cases. So that's a good example for businesses, not for individuals. And um, those sorts of businesses, I, I like a lot. Yeah. So no, that's why is that? Um, in general, I think that the retention rates tend to be high. It's relationship-based instead of transactional. And I think that the amount of focus on the exact price that you're being charged isn't that great. That no matter what fees and stuff you come up with, you basically price it more like a cost plus type thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then you're definitely tied to, I guess, the operations. I mean, when you're talking mm-hmm. about the company that, like advertising, or they do marketing right. for, okay, so let's talk about advertisers, so Omicom, right? You've right. written up that for the website. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also, you have a single diligence post that's on the website. Go to focuscompound.com to get mm-hmm. access to that. Yeah. Small plug. Um, but like, why do you like those types of companies then? I mean, can you argue that businesses like that are much more, I guess, tied to uh, the economy? Because in theory, if things turn in the economy, what's the first thing most companies are going to cut? 
sure you know, yeah, advertising, they do advertising stuff like yeah. that yeah mm-hmm. yeah there's some cyclicality there to that that's absolutely true um but their profitability isn't as variable as you'd expect from the revenues. Uh-huh. So what tends... I mean, the biggest issue for me is not cyclicality of any company that someone brings to me. It's uh, it's competition. I'm most concerned about risks of competition, and particularly risks of price competition. I'm very concerned about your response being that you lower your price to get customers mm-hmm. or to keep customers. That's always my biggest concern. But when, I, when someone talks to me about any business, my biggest concern, or management or whatever, my biggest concern is that as a response to something that a competitor is doing to keep a customer, you will lower your price which is a very scary thing and something you don't want to get in the habit of doing uh-huh. so uh yeah so and some of these things also have somewhat opaque pricing and stuff um which i think is an advantage i don't think it's always a great i don't like you know i don't want to be invested in something like gas stations where you're putting your uh, price up there for everyone to see from the street <laughs> yeah sure yeah um okay so let's kind of dig a little bit more into that though i mean like why do you like i guess i mean what's name some companies so we have csvi mm-hmm we talked about Omnicom. You sure. What other businesses, I guess, remind you of this type of business model that well, you I'll, like so individuals mm-hmm. could maybe, you know, take a look at it? Yeah, well, I'll be writing up Points International for the website soon. And that was one that was complicated when I looked at it because their big business is, um, uh, they call it loyalty currency retailing, which is selling, um, basically selling... Uh, uh, airline miles and stuff for airlines, but w- what I found when I've learned a lot about the company is sort of what I were to talk, what I was talking about here, where I feel like early on in their history they were doing work for airlines that was not very profitable for them, and they hadn't figured out how to make a lot of money from a relationship with the fact that a lot of their stuff is sort of lost leaders for uh, actual stuff that will make the money. And that's what I meant about comparing it to like an ad agency or something. Of course, each of the individual things that an agency can do for you isn't that impressive and is subject to a lot of competition. But if you're able to develop a deeper relationship over time uh, with a lot of different ways in which you're in contact with the client, um, there'll be ways in which you can price things and do things to make a good profit uh, under a variety of different fee structures and stuff. And so, and we see that with banks and other things like that. Uh, and, and so when I f- like learned more about that company, I became more interested when I kind of figured out that I feel like the company they are now, Points International, is different than the company they were like 10 years ago or mm-hmm. something, even though that's not super obvious from the way they describe themselves and some things like that. But I just felt reading about them that they were cha- their business model had sort of changed over time more into a direction of something I'd be interested in. Yeah. Yeah. That was a company that, uh, that you are going to write up on the website. No, well, by we, the time we talked about that, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so that'll be on the website. Yeah. Okay, but can you make? I guess from the business model that you describe, mm-hmm. right? Can you make the the um, argument that a lot of these other businesses that I guess they're attached to can really just in house? You know what they're doing. I mean, sure. does that ever worry you? All of these businesses, the competition is that it could be in house. Every single one of them. That could be true. From, uh, I mean. In the, I mean, there's okay. So there's some stuff accounting-wise that an accounting firm has to do for you that you can't do in-house. But a lot of it could be. Um, obviously, legal stuff can be in-house. Um, advertising stuff can be in-house. That is a way of competing with it. Or it could be separated out and sold and done to way more uh, vendors. Um, those are the sort of your two options. All of the consulting stuff is a choice between in-housing and or not. Um, yeah. Those are all possibilities. No. I don't know that it makes sense to in-house it normally. I think people overestimate how much sense it would make to in-house most of these uh-huh. things. Now, what are your thoughts on like more capital-intensive business models and uh, stuff like that? I mean, you know, it's like obviously we like to stay away from companies that could be you know incredibly capital-intensive, but that doesn't mean that you can't make money in certain situations. Sure. You know? So, I mean, uh, capital-intensive businesses, I like the business model as long as um, 
they're not at risk of overcapacity. Uh, that's really the big risk. So it would depend on things. So the big things are, is it tradable, the commodity across, or whatever your output is across the world? That's not so good if it's easy to move it around. <laughs> and then the other issue would be, is your asset easy to move around too, which can be an issue for like um, uh, cruise ships. Like the actual ships are a significant part of the uh, PP&E and you can obviously move them. You can put them in the Baltic one season and then put them in the Caribbean the next season. Um, so I, do I like you know a cement plant better? Yes. A lot better mm-hmm. um, because uh, the commodity isn't going to move very far because there's a low value uh, to its weight and because uh, the asset can't be moved at all. The, uh, your actual production isn't going to move ever. Sure. What are your thoughts on SaaS companies? <laughs> uh, I would like them if we could afford them. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of them usually trade pretty expensive. Yeah. And it's also a buzzword that you attach all sorts of things that aren't really that. Yeah. Yeah. Both of those things. Uh-huh. Um, I think, was it Points International at first? Were they the ones calling themselves a SaaS company back in the day? No. What company was it that we just looked at recently? Uh, oh. oh, no. It was a cell. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> a, yeah. Uh, the um, company that's doing, um, they're putting like, what, like, uh, what are those things called? Pin machine. I can't remember the name right now. Like gaming machines in, in, right. uh, it's, it's in gas stations virtual, in Illinois. Basically virtual slot machines. Yeah, right? virtual yeah. slot machines. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, and they were calling them like a SaaS company. Yeah, they're uh, distributed gaming. Is yeah. Really is. yeah, yeah, got mm-hmm. it. Um, okay, so let's go back. Okay, so companies like CSVI, companies like Omnicom, um, uh, companies like, for example, the cruise ship company that you referenced. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you kind of value the businesses differently based upon if they are more capital intensive, if they're not? I mean, how do you typically think about that? Uh, yeah, I would value them differently depending on those two things. Um, uh, we talked a little bit about this. Like, I, would you value a retailer the same way you'd value? No. Yeah, no. no. <laughs> because we talked about this. It, what matters to me is, like I've, I've said before, the key constraint that you're looking at there. So it, for a capital intensive business, the key constraint that they have is they have to put more capital into the business to grow it, yeah. basically. And if they do put more capital in the business, they probably can grow it. Um, that is not true like for a retailer. A retailer doesn't take a lot of capital to put in it, and it also doesn't matter. It, we could take um, you know, we could take over PacSun and try to put a billion dollars into it. We're not going to increase their sales a lot. Um, that's not their issue. So uh, whereas if we took over a cement company and put a billion dollars into it, we could produce a lot more cement and we'd be able to sell it at some price and sure. get a decent return on it. Yeah. But um, so it's different issues about... Uh, I mean, we've talked about this with brands and things. It could be issues about their shelf space, things like that. I focus on return on sales with those kinds of businesses, um, uh, retailers and things like that. Retailers are a good example of business that I almost would never buy. Yeah, I mean, we were just talking about this the other day and how I was saying that I don't, I just don't like businesses where there's like inventory. You know, like a lot of inventory. Right. Like, so like you take like a, a retailer, for example, like that or other companies um, similar to that where they have like they have to constantly be turning over their, their inventory. Now, I guess like you could look at a company like uh, Virtu Motors or other auto dealerships that, you know, obviously they have. I, I don't mind general uh, retail stuff. I bought supermarkets before. I'd be happy to buy supermarkets again. Uh, if Walmart was the right price and an overlooked stock, we consider But like you look at a company like Buckle, for example, that I'm pretty sure comes up on every value investor's screen. Um but it's specialized you know, inventory. What do you mean? <laughs> what I mean is that, I mean, we're talking about Points International. When we were saying, what's the risk? Okay, they have minimum per- purchase guarantees. They yeah. have to buy points from yeah. someone. So if at the end of the year they haven't sold enough points for the airline, they're required to buy the points that they haven't sold. Um, I don't, I'm not that worried about that because they're airline miles. They're easy to sell. Um, I'm very worried about... Uh, you know, hundred dollar jeans or whatever. Well, that's my point. That's my point. (laughs) You know, like I would never want to, you know, and again, like what does the company do if they have to get rid of that inventory? 
they do have to get rid of it. They have to market. Yeah, it down. what do they do? They, they market it down. Shelf space. You know, yeah, yeah, because but, they bring in new stuff. To but sell. then you take a company like CSVI or, or a company like Over the Counter Markets or a company like um, uh, Internet uh, Points International. Right, you but, know, but take the example of Buckle or something, or a company like or that. Or Psychomatics. The, the, the reason why they have that problem is because inventory is speculative, and they don't understand their customers' future behavior well enough. Yeah. If it's a fashion thing or something like it's that. It's kind of like a push-pull thing, and right. they're, they're constantly being pulled. <laughs> Whereas when we talk about things like Points International, like they give guidance for something, and we'll see if they hit their guidance or not. But in general, an ad agency, uh, a core processor, a company doing those sorts of things that we're talking about, any sort of professional services that they do for, for companies, they have a pretty good idea of what their, their customers will want next year yeah, of what sure. level of demand they'll want and stuff that's not true for anything that's fashion related they have a very poor idea of what their customers want it's not a relationship in the same way it, it is very the behavior next year from the same customers that they have now could be very different from what they've experienced in the past and they have a hard time predicting it yeah well it's like you said how the best type of companies to own are companies that you need the least amount of data mm -hmm. like frequency from you know so you like yeah. you look at a retailer you look at a restaurant and mm -hmm. it's like consumer behavior is always constantly changing and that's you know it's incredibly hard to predict but you look at a company like over the counter markets or csvi or even points international i mean loyalty mm -hmm. clubs is a, is a very you know huge part of an airline business i mean we jeff and i talk about i guess business models obviously often and we we're actually just talking about this and i was like i just like the companies where you they have the least amount of headline risk possible. Okay. Right. Where you're going to wake up and you don't need to worry about something happening. Like for example, like points international. I mean, now they give, you know, pretty strong guidance. So I guess the, yeah. it's, you know, it's, there's a lot of potential growth there, which could uh, cause the stock to be volatile. But a company like CSVI, I always tell people it's a good company to study, even though we don't own it. It's a company we talk about a lot because it's just so predictable. It's so easy. I mean, VR, VRSN is another one of those companies. FICO is another one of those companies, which right. are bigger companies. It's very much, they're very much companies that don't have sort of big headline risk. Now, of course, FICO had the breach or whatever, which is, I guess, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. headline risk, but just really good sleep at night type of companies that you could own. But the reason why that's happening is because they have, most of these companies we're talking about, actually have fairly deep relationships with their customers and their customer, the variability of the business of the customer is not very great. So you would have the same thing with uh, branded things and stuff. You can have it, like I was uh, saying in terms of retailers, you don't have that much headline risk with supermarkets. You don't have much headline risk with Costco. Yeah. There isn't actually a lot of variation in what they their customers will do, their buying habits. And... Um, you take an example of like brands or something. They have no contracts and things with their customers and they're serving consumers and they have inventory, but they can predict very easily how much ketchup they're going to sell next year because there isn't a great variation in that. Sure. So as long as you have predictability from the customer side of things, then your business can be a lot more predictable. So does it come from just uh, companies where consumer behavior is constantly changing? Like for example, are we still going to eat put ketchup on our hot dogs and, and hamburgers and french fries in 50, 60 to 100 years? Yes, you know, that's going to happen. But mm -hmm. for example, are, are we still going to buy $100 jeans from Buckle that have a little stitch on the side? I mean, I'm not sure, you know, I don't know. Uh, it has a couple aspects to it. One is the time aspect. So like one reason why you might not like inventory or other things like that is I that don't have Buckle jeans, by the way. Okay. <laughs> is that... Um, <laughs> is, <laughs> is that the... Um, uh, that, that by, you know, it's speculating. And so there's a time issue that you have to deal with afterwards. So you actually own the inventory and now you have to do something about it. Um, when we're talking about service things and stuff, you have employees that you have to match up the, the use of them to, but you're not preserving a long lasting inventory that way. The, the, la the length of the cycle depends on that, right? But then the other thing that's going to depend on it is how quickly something's consumed. We were talking before about this, about the difference between durable things and consumable things. I don't think it's that important if you, 
don't think it's that important if you have a contract for selling gum or something. But it does become more important if you're selling washing machines because it, it is easier to put off that kind of purchase. And so it, it does cause a great degree of cyclicality. We're talking about cars or something. Car dealers, I think, are a fairly predictable retailer, but they're never going to be as predictable as a supermarket because the amount to which people can defer purchase of a car is really big compared to the amount they can defer purchase of ketchup or something like that. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on um, like media companies? Disney, Netflix, uh, Fox? I like media companies a lot. Uh, Buffett made a lot of money in media companies. Uh, I haven't invested a lot in media companies. I think that they're often not that cheap. Most of them are very big, which is not the area that we focus on. And for some of them, there is some disruption of some stuff. But, you know, um, but I think when someone asked a while ago, like, what stock would you, if you could only own one stock, like you had to keep a stock forever or something, it could only be one stock, what would it be? And um, <laughs> I think that one of my answers was probably something like Disney. Wow. That's I, I didn't know that. I didn't know. Somebody, <laughs> did somebody ask on the podcast? I thought they did, but maybe not. But I, honestly, it would be something like that. It, really? Most likely it would be something. Like, if someone was asking what stock should I, if I could only, which of course you can diversify, so don't do this. But if I had to buy a stock and, and never. Just I, like never look at it. Never, just look yeah. at it in like 100 years when you're dead. Yeah, you're less likely to lose money on that. I mean, they have some, Are you, they have some debt and stuff, but. Yeah, but something like Disney would be the best answer to that. Got it. I, just, I mean, I don't, I don't know all the details about what's been going on with Disney Plus, but they have the sorts of things that would be very capable of making money in a lot of different ways over time. Even if things fall apart for the company, it'll be able to be re- revitalized at different times. What about business models that take a commodity and turn it into a product and sell it? That's the best business model that there is. So, like, probably. What? Uh, well, we talked about, I mean, so obviously all the really bad things for you, uh, tobacco, yep. uh, alcohol, <laughs> things like that, um, are, are very sugar. Yeah. Are very good businesses. Uh, Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola just buys commodities and, and sells a brand. Um, but there are also other ones, even something like Hunter Douglas. Hunter Douglas basically buys commodities, uh, aluminum and things like that. And then slowly turns through an integrated, uh, 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 manufacturing process so uh, they end up turning it into custom blinds and things that you want blinds mm-hmm. and shades and things like that so uh, which have the Hunter Douglas brand on it so it's not a brand that everyone listening to this knows but if people know those kinds of things then they would put value on that whereas they don't put value on the raw material that they're buying what are your thoughts on restaurants restaurants are interesting have you ever owned a restaurant yes I've owned a restaurant um, stock and I've written up restaurant stocks before and it never went well uh, that's not true it depends I think some restaurants are easy and predictable and some aren't. So one that we wanted to write up and couldn't because the stock price recovered too quickly was Greg's in the UK. And uh, I think that things like Domino's, Dunkin' Donuts, Greg's, which uh, it's sandwiches, but also breakfast things originally and stuff, um, uh, Starbucks, things like that are very different, very, very different than um, something like Cheesecake Factory. Or like a Chili's or... (laughs) Yeah, I think a full service... uh, a uh, restaurant that's doing a lot of dinner business and stuff, I think is a lot harder to understand than a business that's getting most of it from repeat mm-hmm. things and stuff. I mean, I think like something like Starbucks is very, very predictable. I think it's become more predictable over time, like watching what the behavior is, watching how much is in through digital orders and stuff, all of that. And Domino's is like a, you know, a technology company in terms of how it's just turned that into a, making it, it so easy the app to be a habit. Order. Yeah. It's just a habit for people. Uh-huh. That's what they've been able to do with it. So. <coughs> so excuse me so you know those kinds of businesses but a lot of them have been pretty expensive recently mm-hmm. what about papa john's you've been following everything that's going on in that business uh i followed that a little bit i if i had to own a pizza company it would be domino's why i think it's uh completely 
superior to all other uh, pizza companies. Not in terms of quality, I think in terms of the system they have. Have you have you gone to a dom like you order Domino's to eat, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, but have you been in a Domino's to carry out? No. What's amazing about it, and I'll say this the most polite way possible, is um, it barely needs employees. Um, there's Domino's that I've been to several times, and most of the employees are are um, some of the employees are. Uh, under the influence a lot. And they're quite capable of still carrying out the orders. So you're saying like fact. just um, stoners? <laughs> yeah. And they're quite capable of carrying out the orders despite all sorts of mistakes that they're making while I'm there. Yeah. Because of the way that uh, the whole system works. Mm -hmm. I mean, the amount of technology that they've put into it, the, how automated it is. You're getting notifications on your phone of what's happening. You get there. It's easy for them to match everything off. There's a thing that's telling them what order's coming up. It's doing most of the stuff frankly for them yeah yeah uh, so just not it's completely line. i mean it just is so good at not messing up orders and things like that compared to other uh, pizza businesses and it's just so good at making it very habitual in terms of the app sure i mean the app is amazing that way in, in terms of um increasing reorders and stuff and their promotions and things everything about it is just turning it into a habit that they're not it's not about acquiring yeah it saves your order you literally just pull it up click it yeah. and it'll be and they're so fast it'll be there in like 10 and then minutes, of course the price minutes. i mean people is there much better pizza out there so many yes. coupons and stuff yeah, yeah. i mean bad pizza's good pizza but yeah, go ahead. Okay. Well, there's much, much better pizza out there. <laughs> but the problem is that you're not going to constantly re reorder that pizza. Yeah. You know, so it makes it, yeah, no, it makes it much closer to, I would put Domino's in the category of companies that sell coffee, cigarettes, and alcohol. Yeah. Man, we're both coughing today. We're both sick. <laughs> I took my Mucinex earlier. It's still bothering me. I don't own Domino's, by the way. And it's, no. it's, it's, it's highly leveraged. We looked at, we looked at Domino's and Papa John's like three years ago when mm -hmm. we first started meeting up just for fun. Yeah. What about these two-sided marketplace companies like mm -hmm. you look at a company like uber you look at a company like copart you look at a company like eBay. one of those companies makes money and the other <laughs> yeah what are your thoughts on those uh i've said before i mean i want to say it this forcefully but i i've never seen evidence that uber will ever make money really yeah i don't know that i don't think the economics of uber makes sense i'm going to use I've that as the title they, of this so we can click i've never thought they made sense from the beginning on a pro, just basic product economics basis and we could get into the network stuff but i think that the i read the book super pumped Okay. Yeah, I, have, I have doubts about network effects that people claim happen with Uber versus other things. Like and how? Some of it's similar to dating sites and stuff. But, okay, dating um, sites. Here you go. Another two-sided marketplace. Right. But there's issues with that too. Dating sites can be very successful, but I think people may overestimate how much of an advantage it is to have extremely high um, concentration of potential matches for a dating site or extremely high um, possibility of having a driver uh, right by you for... Um, <clears throat> something like Uber as compared to something that's sufficiently good. Uh, I think they may really overestimate that. What do you mean by that? I don't, I don't understand what you just said. Okay. So I think that it's incredibly important that someone be five minutes away. I don't think it's that important that someone be 20 seconds away. And I think that people overestimate that in these things. We were talking about a florist thing. It's not that it, you have to have a florist in every town to be a good network for a florist thing. You don't need to have several florists in every town. Uh -huh. um, money transfer things and you know, Western Union and MoneyGram and stuff, which I've uh, researched in the past. I, I think that in some of these people are overestimating the importance of, um, uh, of additional... Uh, I don't think that it's as important as they think for Uber to have as many... Um, points in its network near you as compared to something like Lyft or something. And I think that the economics of it on a 
like system-wide basis don't make sense why it would be a big advantage over local. I think local is what makes the huge difference. And I also think that unfortunately for something like Uber, most of the economies of scale of something like this that I can see are things that would be captured if you were operating it yourself instead of using contractors. That's a big problem for it. I mean, you know, but anyway, I mean, it depends on savings of different things. We talk about like economies of scales with car dealers and stuff. There are significant economies of scales in operating a bunch of different car dealerships because you have lower insurance costs and you have things like that. If you lay off some of those things onto independent contractors and, and some stuff like that, then you don't benefit from the same scale. If Uber owned all of their own vehicles and was operating an autonomous network, I would agree that it makes some sense, although I still think I have doubts about how much of a benefit it is to be in a bunch of different cities. I think that it's mostly a benefit for raising a lot of money, to be honest. I think Uber is designed mostly to be a system, like we work, for raising a ton of money from investors. And I think that, <laughs> I think that, that some of the strategy that they pursued probably is focused on uh, things that people believe is an advantage in comparing it to some other things that I don't necessarily agree with. I don't think that some of the similarities... I think that people look at something like Amazon and are very excited by it and think that they see similarities between that business and a lot of other businesses recently. And the crop of more recent businesses that we've had has been uh, IPOs and things has been incredibly poor compared to what we had not that long ago. Sure. Yeah. Um, and some of them have business models that don't make a lot of sense. I mean, I, the two that I mentioned a lot are WeWork and Uber. I was see my next question. models that make no sense. My next question was going to be, what, what are your thoughts on the business model of Renting an office and uh, and having well, it in a, a place like WeWork. Here's the, here's the issue with them. They're both great. I have rented an office, for, not from WeWork, but from a competitor. And uh, Yeah, but there's also other competitors that, that are great. I was at, at another office of someone else that I thought, that's amazing. I'd like to work there. Uh, not a WeWork. Um, but, and Uber's the same thing. I've taken plenty of Ubers. It's great. But, yeah. but Domino's is providing an effective service that people are buying a lot of and is making them money on every pizza. And uh, frankly, we work in Uber are growing incredibly fast because they're operating a business model which doesn't make them money mm -hmm. and is not set up to eventually make the money that I can see. Maybe we should talk more about these cult following stocks to get more views. What are your thoughts on <laughs> Tesla? My... <laughs> <laughs> I, Jeff knows actually he doesn't follow any of the fun stuff in no. Tesla. I had to show him the other day when Elon Musk uh, or his associate threw the rock at the at the Tesla truck and the window broke. Jeff had no uh, no idea about it. No, any of that. I, the, the Tesla, the Uber, the WeWork stuff baffles me. Why so? Because I don't. I understand when people say, "Oh, um, this dating site will get to be this huge, amazing profit center and stuff," right? Yeah. I totally understand that. I can see the economics that they might be talking about. Yeah. This is nothing like Facebook. Like when people said, "Oh, Facebook went public and stuff," that I could look and say, "Well, I'm not going to buy that." But yeah, that could be an incredibly valuable company. I have no idea how Uber could ever be an incredibly <laughs> valuable company. Uh -huh. But allegedly, Buffett was considering, you know. But I think that's more like he was going to get some warrants. Yeah, yeah, it was going to be one money. of his, his. He was going to buffet them. Yeah, yeah, which might make sense. He, j he did that with US Air and stuff, and so maybe yeah. it's as good a business as an airline. Yeah, which, Not, No, airlines are much better businesses than Uber now, but maybe it's as good as airlines were when they first deregulated. Yeah, we should end this podcast. <laughs> We're annoying people. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Mr. Jeff and myself. Hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up. Leave us a rating and review. That goes a long way. Go to focuscompounding.com. Sign up at the premium side of things to get access to all of the writings on the website. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us. Have a great day. Take care.
Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along.